looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeastern by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy Train Radio? You look like hell. And I could look the same. What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Truth, 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 I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. I'm one crazy new Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hi, I'm Mackenzie Gray, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio.
Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. This next guest has been a professional actor for over 40 years and has a resume of over 150 films and TV shows. Folks might recognize him as a series regular on the Marvel FX series Legion, playing VI, a reoccurring cast member on both the CW series Riverdale as the pathologist, and plays the Time Master on DC's Legends of Tomorrow. He was involved with this new movie that is out now on VOD and Blu-ray as Kane in the movie Ditched. Please welcome Mackenzie Gray. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Can't complain. Nobody listens anyway, but (laughs) (laughs) at least I'm not going to, I can't go full scale at this uh, particular moment. But first and foremost, I want to address the new project that is finally out after a couple of years, Ditched. Ditched, yeah. And the role you played is Kane. So what can you, without any spoilers, tell us about the project? Well, Ditched is a pretty uh, dark and uh, grisly thriller. I, I, it, you, some people call it horror. I'd say it's kind of a dark thriller um, with some horror elements, I guess. Uh, it's a revenge film, and it's got really wonderful uh, uh, sort of moral dilemma of uh, who's, who's a good person and who's a bad person. And uh, the character I play, Kane, has decided that everybody that he wants to kill is bad and deserves to die for one reason or another. And um, like all villains, you know, they think they're right. They don't think they're bad people. You know, they, they don't wake up saying, how can I be bad today? You know, they, they, he's planned this for a long time to get back at uh, what he considers um, rights that have need to be wrongs that need to be righted. And um, but each of the characters in, that are locked in the ambulance or that are in the police car or that are trapped in this situation all feel that they are innocent or that they deserve lenience or they deserve to live and so it's it's a great sort of twisty tale of who who you side with and who you don't and um the lead actress uh, uh marika silla she is a wonderful actress she's first nations uh indigenous actress and um she, her character is morally complex too but but we cheer for her and we want her to do well um, and uh, but and it's a it's a great she's done quite a bit of work, but it's a great lead role for her. And when you are a lead and you have to carry a film, it's a big weight. It's a big responsibility. And I think she does a great job. And Chris Donaldson, our director, he cast her well. And I think he cast the whole film well. And I was very glad to be a part of it. And two things there. I would say from. I had a chance to watch three quarters of the movie mm-hmm. and I would say more of a psychological thrower. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah, it was the, what's the perspective I took of the film. Yes. And I also, and I'm not one to pucker up and kiss up, but I would agree with what you were saying there in terms of the bad guy per se. Yeah. And I find it, with 
all forms of entertainment, whether you're talking movies, TV shows, professional wrestling, what whatever form of entertainment you may look at, the heel or the bad guy, oh, the best ones always think they're right. Yeah. And have that exact perspective that you were talking about there. I think that makes the best bad guys. Yes, I agree. And I, I played a lot of bad guys. I've done over, you said 150. I've actually done over 200 films and I've played villains in a lot of them. And, uh, you know, dial a villain, call me up, you know, but it's, but you have to, each one has to have their, what drives them and what makes them work. And in some cases it's clearer, like revenge, you know, is a motivation for a lot of characters, both good and bad. You know, it's some characters, their fall from grace is then a need for revenge, you know, and they, they, they make bad choices and so on. But for villains, uh, you know, if it's clear cut, then it's, it's easier to play and uh, you can take it to a, as dark a place as you need. You know, I, I played Lex Luthor in the final series of um, Smallville. I played the clone. He's cloned himself and I'm the clone. And, uh, you know, all he wants is to revenge himself on Superman. You know, that, that, that's his driving force. He has no other big plans at that point. Because the only thing that's been kept from Lex, downloaded through the DNA into the, the clone, is revenge and hatred of Superman. So it, it's very interesting. Uh, there's always a good motivation somewhere in there, you know? Well, I, I was just going to say, when we played, we did Man of Steel, Michael um, Shannon and was Zod and I, I was Jaxer and, uh, and uh, Ancha Trao was uh, Feora, the three Kryptons, you know, come in. And at one point we were walking behind the set to go to set and there was a young PA there and he was on a balustrade where we were walking and we had all our guys with us as well. And so we we're making a lot of noise chung, 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 walking along this wooden, you know, scaffolding. And he said, wow, you guys are pretty scary villains. And I said, we're not villains. We're freedom fighters for Krypton. And I was just joking, you know, but, but, and the guy go, okay, I got it. I got it. And Michael Shannon said, Oh, I love that. I mean, that's how, we should think of ourselves. That's yeah. I love that. And uh, so, you know, from then on, we, we didn't think ourselves of ourselves any differently than that, you know? So, well, like I said, ditched is available VOD and Blu-ray today, but I wanted to touch on a couple other things. Would you, sir, you were talking about the revenge and I guess how you perceived the material there, but I'd be curious to know, no matter what the project is, how do you tend to read the material when it's presented to you, whether for the audition or you already got the role or whatever the case may be, are you method? How, how would you explain you digesting the material? Well, I, I, you know, obviously I read it and try and see what the sense of it is. If it's an audition, you don't get very much. So they used to send us the scripts and now they don't. There's so, so many scripts are NDA. You can't, you know, they don't want you to read it and know things. So you just get your bit, you know? And so from that bit, you have to figure out what it's all about. And maybe there's a character description that goes with it. So you try and make some choices as you're reading it and figuring out how things, how it works. And when I'm learning my lines, I try and I get them, you know, I memorize them, of course, but then I try and think of different ways of saying it, even if it makes no sense, just to free myself up so I don't get locked into one way of doing it. You know, and you can break a sentence up. You can do things and there's ways to just try and find 
you know, some good essence in there and maybe find a different approach. But once you've got the, the script, once you've got the role, you know, you read the whole script, it's important to know everything that's going on in the script, what the whole story is, and also how other characters talk about you. You know, there's other people might have a conversation. It's not your scene, but they might be talking about things you did or how you were. And you can get a lot of information from those other scenes about what your character is all about. But as far as method, I don't, I'm not a method actor. I was trained in England and in Canada. And I would say it's a mixture of the British method and, and the Canadian sort of organic method, which is, um, you know, I, I try and inhabit the character. I try and find exactly what it's about, but I don't lose myself in, in it, like living it every day and trying to be it 24 hours a day. It's, I mean, some people that works for them, but it, it's, it's very draining, very exhausting. And I, I think it's nice to be able to, I think it's, it's good. It's nice to be able to, at the end of the day, hang up the character and the costume and go home and be yourself. You know, it's, it's, it's healthy, especially when you yeah. play a lot of bad guys, you know, you don't want to go to a restaurant and say, give me that food. You know, you know, it's just, you know, you don't do that. And so I think, but I think there's a point when you're on set and you're in the zone, you need to focus really clearly but as I've said to other people, when I'm playing very dark characters and there's a lot of, you know, nastiness and whatever, I try and keep it as light as possible on set. I try and keep it funny, crack jokes, keep light. And then I focus when I'm working, you know, like when I'm getting to the set, because if you're toxic all day as a, as a toxic character, it's really, uh, it's really draining. It can wane on your mental health. That's for sure. Yes, absolutely. But with that being said, it's funny that you say that, that you're not, that you're cracking jokes and everything else. You know, you're pretty loose uh, before a red light comes on. And that reminded me of a chat I had, I guess it was about two weeks ago with David Howard Thornton. Oh, yeah. Who was in a, you know, pretty uh, horrific car film, I guess is the way to put that. You know, gruesome, I would say, is the word I'm thinking of. Yeah. And he was he plays this character, but it was so deep and menacing and everything. But yet before they said action, it, he was like, hey, you know, tell, you know so, like it was complete opposite of what he was doing. Yes. And but, I think you've got to respect the other actors, too. I mean, you know, some actors need to focus and be they don't want distractions. So they don't want you cracking jokes beforehand and some and other ones. They like it's loose because then they, they have to focus and. Malcolm McDowell and I did a film many years ago called um, 2103, The Deadly Wake. And we became very good friends. And uh, we, we come from similar kind of backgrounds in theater and so on. And, and Malcolm would always try and crack me up, not only in a take, but before a take. And he's merciless. And, and he was funny, you know, and he couldn't get me. And at one point I said, why do you keep doing that? Like, why do you keep trying to crack me up? And he said, I believe we do our best work on the edge of hysteria. I said, that's just rubbish. Come on. You know, you know, you can't possibly mean that. And he said, no, no, we do. Because he, and he learned it from, um, from um, uh, Lindsay Anderson and other older British actors that if you, Malcolm's theory was that if you're suppressing a laugh and you've, you, you've got to keep your focus in there, the laugh is still somewhere inside you and it comes out in your eyes and there's kind of a twinkle in your eyes. And he said, that twinkle is star power. And that's what keeps the audience connected to you. It's thought, all right here. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, the eyes are the window to the soul. I mean, we, every actor, if they don't know that, they should know that. Now, I had a producer who was 
we were looking, he was showing me headshots and, and actors he'd gotten. And he pulled one out and it was an actor sort of up against a ladder, sort of full shot. And he's looking all very, you know, handsome and, you know, look at me. And, and the producer said, why would he, why would he submit a picture like that? Like, come on, why would he do that? It's ridiculous. He said, that doesn't tell me anything. It just tells me he knows how to stand next to a ladder. I need to see his eyes. I need to see the face. That's why they call it a headshot. And then he, and I said, yeah, you know, of course. And he said, and headshots, they tell you everything. It's in the eyes and the eyes are the window to the soul. And that's, I've never forgotten him saying that. And it's true that, you know, in, in films, I, I've seen some films, there's a couple of directors who don't like using close-ups. They, they keep it kind of wide, you know, and you can never get in, you can never connect with the characters through the close-ups that we as an audience connect with the character. And, exactly. You know, you know, so, and, and and that's where the eyes are the truest. That's where you have to, you know, you've got to be connected. And, and you know, it's interesting you say that. As far as the eyes and windows to the soul and everything else on that theory, which is, I always thought, 100% accurate. And you're not the first person I've heard say that. Right. But I do want to say, at least from my perspective and doing this and everything else, what we've been doing for 10 years, the past year and a half, give or take doing a lot more of these via zoom and everything. And I take that philosophy as with the eyes. Like right now we are on camera, which is awesome. I, we could see each other and I can get a good vibe on you. And I'm hopefully giving you some, what of a yeah. decent vibe. Yeah. We can, it makes the conversations better because we can Absolutely. see that you're truly interested. If you're not, you know, that whole thing you've been around, you've seen that with interviews. Yeah. So, you know, exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Well, so, you know, I, I appreciate you asking me on your show and I appreciate talking to you about the film and it's great. And so I, you know, I wouldn't be anything less than a hundred percent present for you because that's why we're doing this. Yeah. And uh, I, and I appreciate that. So, you know, and I, I know, I know people who turn their cameras off to do these Zoom things, and you know, they're going, "Hey, so you know, like, it's, that's not there's no respect there." So I, I, I respect what you do, and I respect what we're doing, and so I'm there. You know, yeah, because it's true. It's true of acting too. Like the, in, in, you know, when you're committed in a scene or connected, you got to be really listening. You can't be just waiting for them to stop talking. You know your line, and and it, it's it's an easy trap to fall into for some people, but if you're really listening, you'll hear how they say it. And if they change the way they say it or do it, you can react more appropriately. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's just about being present. And you know? some of that too, with that being said, I would say, yes, you got to be present, but also would you say some of that would be improv because, and the reason I say it that way is like you said, if somebody changes the tone just slightly or of what they're saying or, whatever the case may be, you can act accordingly based yeah, so, on. Well, uh, you know, there's an old cliche, uh, an acting cliche, which is all acting is reacting. And so, you know, you got to listen to what's being given to you. Now, sometimes an actor might take a choice that may not be a good choice that works for you, but you still go with it and then you can discuss it later on stage. Of course, you have to go with it because there is no later. It's there and it's right there in the moment, but you know, it's, it is a bit of improv in some cases. And sometimes your own work of where you try and change something up is an improv as well. And actors who've done improv always are much 
better at reacting to what's given to them, you know? And, and sometimes an actor might screw up a line and, and, uh, and change the line, it, 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 you know, they might, instead of saying, is, is that what you're gonna do? Uh, they, they might say, so will you do that? They, they, they might mess it up. And so instead of saying, yes, that's what I'm gonna do in your response, you might say, yes, I will. You know, you change the answer to suit what they said if they changed the line. So you only really get that if you're listening properly, right? And it happens yeah. all the time. I mean, it's not that people paraphrase and you, some directors are, you know, completely, you know, like police chiefs about, you know, and, you know, and we should be on book. They didn't hire us to write. They hired us to act, you know, so we do the lines as they are, but it, it gets messed up sometimes. And sometimes it's a natural thing and you go with it. And, you know, also I've, I've worked with a lot of big, big stars and some of them have a kind of a healthy disdain for, or maybe unhealthy disdain for the dialogue and they'll make it their own. And you get a totally different line. So if you're not listening, you know, you're going to come off like an idiot. So you know, I've, I've had that a few times, not many, but a few times. So, you know. Well, you mentioned previously about, with Malcolm McDowell and all the theater background. And obviously uh, in the introduction, I mentioned about both TV film yes. and all that stuff, but you mentioned about the theater background. Do you have a preference, whether it being with a live audience? And I know that's tough because of COVID in a theater setting compared to TV and film. Well, they're very, very different. And it's, I love them both. You know, I love film and television because of, uh, I mean, it's done much faster. You don't have quite as much, you don't have rehearsal in television at all. You, you know, you get a minute rehearsal before you go. Film, sometimes you get rehearsal, but um, you know, it's it, with the camera and the silence and playing in the moments and so on. It's the whole different set of muscles and, and things. And it's totally rewarding right? when you get it, you know, or you feel a good scene and you feel that connection on stage. It's exciting to be in front of people and there's no safety net. It's it's flying you know by the seat of your pants and it's it's uh, it's exciting to have that audience. The audience is a fifth character and really in a in a you know an added character because you can feel them breathing, you can feel them laughing, or you can feel them uh, you know when they're getting bored. You can even sense that. You can feel the restlessness. You know the candy wrappers come out or whatever, <laughs> and you know it's it's um, it's it, it's a totally exciting different prospect. Like when you are off stage and you're about to step on, there's a moment, you know, you get a little adrenaline rush and you've got it, but you've got to still be cool and in your character or whatever. But it's kind of the second you step on, you have to be present all on your whole body, your whole language. You've got to have all your essences full tune, right? You've got to be on. And you, so you've got to be listening to the other actors. You've got to be aware of where you are on the stage. You got to be aware of, you know, placing it so the audience can see it. You got to be aware of what they're doing, and it's a whole different set of muscles. But it's totally exciting and wonderful. And some actors who've never done stage, they've just done film and television. They they admit they're quite terrified by the fact of doing it in front of an audience. But on set, you've got an audience there. You got a hundred crew. You got people all watching, holding lights, listening to stuff, the boom op, whatever. They're all that's an audience too. It's just you don't play to that audience. You you play to the camera and to the character you're off, you're, you're with. But um, yeah, they're different beasts, but I love them all, you know? Well, 
last professional question because I also have one personally because okay. I kind of stalked your pers- social media as well. <laughs> That's all right. But the last professional question or yeah, professional question. Last day, uh, first day, new brain, folks, uh, <laughs> is, yeah, I, I change it up. I usually say first day, new mouth. So a <laughs> little sure. improv there, folks. So obviously I heard there was a story and I'd like you to tell it here if you can. And you went for an audition one time and there was something with an ax and you mentioned had a little war of words with the director with a pencil and also could you maybe tell the story yeah i i went for an audition i won't say who the director is but uh i went for an audition and the character uh it was it was from a a, a well-known video game source of this thing and this character always has this big axe and i had done a film called voyage of the unicorn where i had a giant battle axe and i'll take that in i can use it lean on whatever you know and I walked in and the producer said, oh, that's a great axe. This is wonderful. I said, oh, this old thing, you know, just carry it around. I was being light. And the director is someone I'd met socially and I knew through some other actors and had gone to uh, drinks with him before. And he, he, he was a very flippant guy, but funny. And uh, so he's, he said, and I said, so, uh, you know, so I brought the axe. And he, he said, well, that's an axe you're holding. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, let's see if it'll help you act. Right? So I said, okay. And he was tapping a pencil. He was like tapping a pencil. And I said, is that a pencil in your hand? He said, yeah. And I said, let's see if it'll help you direct. <laughs> and I don't know what made me say that because it was horribly rude and kind of stupid. And I got there and the others were looking away like, oh my God, like, you know, they were, they couldn't believe I said it. And the, director was sitting there like this the whole time like just just staring at me like you know he didn't move and at the end of it the scene was done and the reader said and there, there's the scene and so he goes thank you i'm gonna and, guess and, you didn't get a call back on that one and no and i walked out and uh one of the producers came out and said i have to tell you mac that was one of the funniest things i've ever seen but that was one of the stupidest things i've ever seen i said i know i don't know what came over me i thought i had a better rapport with him. Obviously, I didn't. And apparently, I I'd hit his Achilles heel. You know, like people, you know, said he wasn't a very good director. You know, and uh, that was his that was his thing. He didn't like the criticism. So I, we made up later, and I apologized, and you know, we were okay. But well, that's good. Yeah, but and everybody's asked me who the director is, and I'll never tell. Them. No, no, you know. <laughs> Maybe, thank you for not. Thank you for not asking. You know, I, not the time or the place. Maybe over a drink or two when we're, you know, not recording. That's one thing. But I would never want to put that publicly out there. Yeah. <laughs> but the personal question I want to ask, and I had just, I don't know the story behind it, so I want to tread lightly. I guess is the best way to say it. And you can speak as much as you want on it. But I saw you talking positively on the social media with being a year with a prosthetic. So yeah, what happened and how are you doing now with that? And just- well, I'm, I'm a type 1 diabetic. I have been since I was 13. And I've never had foot troubles or anything in my life. I've been pretty 
healthy, in fact, exceptionally healthy. And, uh, but as you get older, different things break down. And I was in El Salvador directing a film and uh, teaching and uh, in, in the shower and some water on the last day I was there, I got a super microbe got into my foot. Could have been through a little cut or something, could have been anything. And um, so I didn't know, and I was back in Canada and my foot, I started to get tired and feel really awful. And my foot was slightly swollen, but it was nothing very marked or whatever. And I finally went and saw my podiatrist, who's also a surgeon. He said, yeah, it's a little swollen, but that doesn't, I can't see anything There's, you know, we'll we'll look we'll monitor it and then the next literally the next day my foot was the size it was huge I couldn't get in a shoe I was so exhausted and dying and I was basically dying from septicemia and I was raced to the hospital and they had to cut my toe open and took out two or three cups of gangrene from my foot and poison and stuff like that and then I was sent so they amputated the big toe and part of the side of the foot um to to save my life because I had nearly died. My white blood cell count was 24. It was just ridiculous. And they saved my life. And then I was, I spent six months in a walking cast to try and let it heal. But the damage that had been done in the rest of the foot through the infection to the bones just wasn't healing. It was, it wouldn't get better. And uh, so eventually they, it started to get bad. And uh, so they said, well, we'll have to see if we can save the foot. And if we can't, you lose your leg. And the, they told me that the next morning. And on that morning, I had no idea going in whether I was going to just lose, if they're going to fix it or what. And I woke up and I had no leg. So they had had to amputate the leg. So, you know, I, it, I was prepared for it, but it was still, you know, a bit of a shock. But I've always accepted things in my life, been pretty you know, I take my lumps and I've, I, I think the best way is to look positively into what you've got going on. So the next day on social media, I, on Facebook, I said, I took a picture, you know, those beach pictures where people shoot, you know, their, their feet by the sea and their Corona beer in their hands. I just took a picture on my hospital bed of the one long leg and the stump, which was all bandaged. It wasn't grotesque. And I said, well, I guess it's a pirate's life for me. And, uh, I'm determined to, uh, to uh, walk again, I want by New Year's, I want to be dancing with my girlfriend and I will walk again. I'm going to do things. And uh, but, you know, as far as pirates go, I can save them a lot of CGI, you know. So I just kept and, and literally thousands of people responded to that and said it was amazingly positive and they couldn't believe it after losing how positive I was. And this was in the middle of COVID. So people were saying, here I am crying about being isolated for a week and, you know, look what you're, you're being funny. So I decided to keep posting on positive things. And at one point when they got me up on these without the leg, but I, I, you know, I was learning how to, you know, do stuff one legged and, you know, do exercises on the exercise bars. I said, can you guys take a picture? And I had a, a hospital gown on and I pulled it up. Like I was showing a bit, a bit of leg, you know, like, like an old 1930s thing. And I said, I'm just showing a little leg. So I just kept making jokes and people, yeah, but I'm, and <laughs> People, people responded to it. So anyway, this two days ago, or whenever I made the post you probably saw, I realized it was a year to the day that since I'd gotten the prosthetic leg. That when I, you know, because you had to wait four months or three months for it. For everything to heal. To heal yeah. To heal, yeah. And the first day I was on it, uh, I got up and you're supposed to take three steps and feel your way. And I, I was so happy to be up. I just took off and they had to kind of chase me down. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I was just so happy to be up. But I would say that one of the things that came to me through all that process of rehab and 
the physiotherapy work to get you to walk again was the training I had as an actor in, in theater school where we did movement and we did Grotowski stuff and we did, uh, you were constantly doing movement theater and doing things where you had to know your body. And all of those exercises and that training came in handy, you know, 40 years later. You How know, about that? You know, it, it, I'm very appreciative of the fact that I, I didn't struggle like many new amputees do with balance and learn, you know, not knowing where their center is and so on. And I had no trouble with that. So I was discharged a lot earlier because I, I had been well-trained and I progressed well. So that's positive the story. mind frame. Yeah. So folks, the movie is ditched. It's on VOD now, Blu-ray. I will have links to both with all outlets of this. Mackenzie Gray, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And I see you've got skates there. Yes. Yes, I got my hockey skates there. Are you a Flyers fan? I am, but I also enjoy... I've been uh, getting a kick out of watching the uh, Seattle team. Oh, yeah, the Kraken. Yeah. Yes. Well, I grew up in Toronto. My dad designed homes for the Maple Leafs and uh, Punch Imlach and the... And so I grew up in Maple Leaf Garden. So I bleed blue and white. I'm a, there you go. I'm a Leafs fan. Well, here you, know. you go. So what I was going to say was, because you mentioned the Leafs, was I actually have a stick game used and signed out in my sports room in the garage from Jake Musen, who's currently. Oh, wow. with, but the stick was from when he won the Stanley Cup with the L.A. Kings. And right. I believe it was 16. So. Wow, yeah. uh, he's a great player. He's a great player. Absolutely. Mackenzie, thank you. Thank you. And, and Jonathan, anytime. Thanks so much. is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day and special seasonal gift sets. But also, let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansopery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansopery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends you. This is Beatrice Buckley, a.k.a. Amanda Kruger for Nightmare on Elm Street 5 and other films, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio.